part of petty things. You know, maybe something has happened to you in the past. Uh, maybe it was something really, uh, really you felt as really significant in your life, and so you decided to uh, to do something about it. And as you look back and in your actions, you d- you you decided that uh, man, my actions were really, really petty. I'm just going to confess to you something that I do often in our house. And a part of this uh, confession, you're going to think I'm I'm telling on my wife, but I'm not. Uh, but uh, but this is just something that I do, and uh, it's my own pettiness. It's my own dealing with my own pride and guilt. Uh, we drink coffee at our house. I don't know if you know that or not, we've talked about it before, but we drink coffee uh, most every morning, and uh, and my wife likes to use that artificial sweetener stuff called Splenda, and so that's not the uh, that's not the thing I'm confessing for her. Uh, and so uh, so she will uh, use these Splenda uh, Splenda packets, and uh, and so I and the garbage man and come by and clean up the Splenda packets that have been left out on the cat on the counter. And I decided one day um, because uh, because it ang- because it angered me so much that these Splenda packets were left out on the counter that I would begin collecting them and I would uh, I would collect all these Splenda packets to uh, to make a point like look how many you've left out on the counter anybody with me like you're looking at me like I cannot believe you're telling this story this morning like what is going to happen to you tomorrow's uh, the office is closed tomorrow I'll have a day to recuperate <laughs> so I began saving up all these Splenda packets to uh, to make this great point of look how awful you are wife Look how awful you are that you leave these Splenda packets out on the counter. And as I look at the pile of Splenda packets that I have now collected, I began hearing the Holy Spirit telling me, look at you. Look how petty you are. Look at your own actions. Look how consumed you are with things that do not, that do not matter. You're going to prove a point. You're going to really prove a point and watch this pr- point be proven. And so I share with Mandy, look at this box of Splendid Packets that I've been collecting from your sins over the decades or over the past weeks. And, uh, and you know what she did with those? Those Splendid Packets? She threw them in the trash. She threw them in the trash. Now you're missing the point, Mandy. Come on, let's have an argument about this. Let's let's talk about how righteous I am and how holy I am and how right I am. But these should have already been in the trash. No, they're petty. Let's throw them in the trash. Then you go and sit on the recliner. You know, the man's place in the house. You sit there and you think about how manly you are and what a great spiritual leader you are and how awesome you are in all those moments. And the Lord, again, convicts you of your pettiness about how you begin to focus on things that do not matter. Focus on things that are fleeting. Th- things that are going away. Uh, instead of the, the great thing like, hey, look at this as an opportunity when my wife leaves her splendor packets out on the counter. Look at this as an opportunity to, to, to love the bride as Christ loves his bride. Look at this as, a, as an opportunity to, uh, to serve someone else and to throw these things away. And you might hear the sarcasm in my voice because I'm still struggling with that as a human. Okay. But we're all a part of these petty things. I remember also another confession growing up, and I was so frustrated at my sister. And she's going to listen to this later, so i got to be real careful what I say about her. But so frustrated at my sister for not listening to Christian music. And so I would go into her room and change the radio station. Like, I'm going to prove the point, woman, or woman-to-be. You're going to listen to Christian radio, and I'm going to open your Bible up for you so that you know it's time to read it. Petty things proving proving nothing. Have you thought about in your own life like how you, you might treat God in this way too? Like with little petty things? Particularly when we don't get our way. 
When things aren't going our way, we tend to fight back with, with petty things. God, I wanted you to do this, but because you're not doing this, this is how I'm going to act. We begin acting like a child. I'll show you. I'm going to cross my arms and pout. I'm going to sit down in the corner and I'm going to show you who's boss. You're acting like a five-year-old. You're acting immature. We, we tend to do these things with, with the Lord. We act petty. When things don't go our way, when we're not receiving from him the things that we think that we should, particularly the things that we think that we're deserving of receiving, then we begin acting back to him in selfish, petty, small, little ways. This particular passage of Scripture, most of you, if you've grown up in church, you're familiar with it. It's one of these Old Testament texts that will disregard much of the Old Testament, but most pastors will grab this text and bring it over into New Covenant life and use this particular text to guilt you, to shame you, and to giving money towards the church. You know, you come to church and think, oh no, the, pre- the preacher's going to speak about money again. We are this morning. We're going to speak about money because it's in the text and we've been working our way through Malachi. But I want to look at it not in the way of petty, pettiness or selfishness, not in the way of our own selfish gain, even the church's gain. We want to look at what Christ has, is desiring of us and look at what God is even speaking to the people of God about in Malachi chapter 3. And then use uh, the Holy Spirit to counsel us upon what he desires of us, how he wants us to be obedient to even these thoughts from, from years ago. The people of God were not receiving from God the things that they thought that they deserved receiving, and so they began acting in petty ways, holding back from God the things that he deserves, holding back from God the things that he's already given to them, but not acting in obedience to his Instruction, And so with that, they begin acting in petty ways. And God, call, God calls them out on that, saying, You are robbing from me. You're a thief. You're stealing from God. And so I want to throw this out from the beginning. God owns everything. We understand that. He's created everything. We understand that everything is His, that everything is subject to His Son, that His Son is Lord of all. And at one point in history, He will be over every single person and every single thing in this world and so with that being said does he really need anything that we have anything that we think belongs to us whatever percentage that is is he really in need of that the answer obviously the answer is no God isn't in need of you he's not in need of me he's not in need of any percentage of things that I have So it's not about that. This particular scripture is not about percentages. It's not about his need for our stuff. Instead, this particular scripture is about us acting in obedience to the Father. Understanding that if he is Lord, then he should be Lord over all. That if we confess Christ as Lord of our life, that indeed he should be Lord of our life. Not just parts or portions of our life, but every bit of our life. So let's read together. We'll, we'll just quickly go through through this together, uh, starting in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. We've been working our way through. You have to, again, have an understanding of the book of Malachi. is about habits formed, habits formed by these people belonging to God who were rescued from, from slavery, rescued from captivity, and over time they forgot about the rescuer, they forgot about God. They forgot about the instructions that the rescuer gave to them. They forgot about what it looks like to live a holy life. 
what the things that they should be worshiping, the things they should not be worshiping, the things that they should be consumed with. And so with that being said, this scripture still applies to us in this, in this regards to us today, and that we should be looking at how to be obedient to God in the new covenant, but still obedient to God, to his instructions, what he desires of us, how we are to live, what habits we should have in our life how we should walk daily in newness of life, in this new life that God has uh, rescued us from the old life, from sin, from death, placed us upon this new life. So how should we live? What habits should we have? How should we be walking with every portion of our life? So with your time, with your emotions, with your feelings, with your thoughts, with your actions, with your words, with your resources, with your money, with your family, with your job, with your church, all these things, if Christ is indeed Lord of your life, then, with that being said, He should absolutely be Lord over all of your life. No dichotomies, no separations, no percentages, but instead every bit of who we are for every bit of who He is, as much as we are capable of doing and the Holy Spirit uh, living through us. And I should say this in a second. We're going to talk about the tithe. We're going to talk about giving, contributions, those types of things. Historically, we know, biblically, we know that the tithe is a 10% of what you have. It's a 10% of what you, what you possess. And so that being said, most of the time in Christian teaching, we hear all about uh, you and my, myself as a disciple, as one uh, being a member or attending a church, that we should at least be giving 10% of our income towards kingdom work, towards the church. And and that being said, that is a great starting point. But when you see the church come together after Christ has resurrected from the grave, ascended into heaven, and the church comes together, they're all about 100%. So we're going to talk about new covenant life. Like don't, don't bring in percentages. Don't argue about what well, 10% is too much because reality is Christ wants 100% of you. So we can settle and we can agree on 10%. Like, well, hey, 10% is a good starting point. 100% sounds painful, all right? 100% sounds like radical living, but I don't know that I'm ready for it yet. So let's just use 10% as a starting point for, for kingdom giving. But again... Listen, this morning, as much as you're capable of doing, until I bore you to sleep and you take part in the Sabbath rest and this holy pew here, listen to me as much as you can. The point of this section is not about your percentage of your giving. The point of this section is your obedience to Christ and Christ alone. Verse 6 of chapter 3 of Malachi says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Okay, so we begin here with this words from God about his, the fact that his character, the fact that his attributes, his actions, who he is, all of God does not change. But instead it seems the people changing or the subjects in this verse that are changing are the people, particularly in this case, the people belonging to God. He, he starts out with, oh children, like understand this, I'm not the one that has changed, but it is you who have changed. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, oh children of Jacob. Interesting uh, little side note here. Notice that God does not say, for I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O children of Israel. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 32, God changed Jacob's name. He changed his name to Israel. 
No longer is Jacob called Jacob. No longer are the people of God called the people of Jacob. They're called the people of Israel or the children of Israel. So God's speaking some harsh words here. He's talking about a moment, about a moment when they were something different with a different name, and he changed their name to a new name. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's talking about the fact that, uh, that he changed Jacob's name they're the ones that are in, that are in the, the mode or the, the standard operations of being changed. And God's the one who brings about that change. He doesn't change. He, stay, he stays the same forever. Throw it over into New Covenant life. Hebrews 13.8 says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay, we're saying God and Jesus are the same. They're one. And in that, we can also say that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We are not that way. You are familiar with this. You look at yourself in the mirror, and you see change every day. You recognize that's not the same person who was standing looking in the mirror yesterday. Right? Uh, you see this in your kids. As their kids are growing up, uh, you recognize real quickly. Every time they go back to a family event, someone always says the same thing to Reese. Good grief, Reese, how tall are you going to get? You keep changing over and over again. We are people who's constantly changing. No one is saying that to the Lord. Wow, God, the last time I saw you, you were shorter than this. How much taller are you going to get? The Lord doesn't change. He's the same forever. So, so our first kind of point is this. It's real simple. The Lord doesn't change. That's point number one of this section here. We have to remember that. Sometimes in this, this is a fun little pun here, a fun little uh, connection to make. For I, the Lord, do not change. When we're talking about giving of 10%, we're talking about change. You know what I'm saying? Like if you got a dollar, what's 10% of a dollar? It's change, right? It's just pennies and cents. It's a bunch of change. We're talking about change in our own self, a change in our own heart, a change in our own affections, a change in our own attitude. In this particular case, it seemed as if the people of God had, had a heart condition change, that their possessions began to possess them, began to rule over them. The resources that they had became to be Lord of their life, that the gifts that they were receiving became the thing that they were worshiping instead of the giver of the gifts. And so they weren't changing in that. And they needed to be reminded, number one, that the Lord does not change. If you feel as if something has changed in your relationship with the Lord, don't blame the Lord for it. Blame yourself. Take ownership. Recognize what's going on in your own heart. Ask God, Lord, change me. Change me. Ask the, the question, why would you go back to calling me by my old name? Why would you call us, O children of Jacob, instead of children of Israel? Verse 7 says this, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. So return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So in this particular verse, in verse 7, point number 2 is this, the Lord does not change, point number one. Point number two, if the Lord is not changing, he's not the one in need of repentance. He's not the one in need of turning around. Instead, it is the people that are in need of repenting, turning around, turning towards something else or someone else, doing a, a, an about face and turning towards, uh, in this particular case, turning towards the Lord. Don't accuse the Lord of needing to repent. Instead, recognize quickly that it is myself that needs to repent. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes 
and have not kept them. So who did the turning, who did the about face from the days of the Father? The people, not the Lord. They turned and walked in a different direction from the Lord, not not the not the Lord turning and going in a different direction. Peter Adams says this The people of God complain about the character of God, and they try to take revenge on him by petty acts of disobedience. But in fact, their only hope lies in the character and the constancy of God. Like we're reminding each other, reminding themselves that it's not the Lord who turned their back turned his back on them, and instead it's themselves who have turned their backs on the Lord. Again, Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has not changed. And so when we feel change in our life, our emotions, our feelings, our attitudes change, or we're wondering why we feel distant from the Lord, we begin to ask ourselves, where are we? Where, where, what are we facing? What have we turned to and seeking delight or satisfaction in instead of the Lord? And in this particular case, we're going to talk about resources. How often do we look at earthly resources and turn to those things and expect them to bring about satisfaction to our life? Lamentations 3 says this, verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. The author is talking about how, uh, how destitute he is, how unsatisfied he is, how he's always under affliction and always wandering, uh, thinking that these things of this earth are going to bring about satisfaction. And in this case, what does he call to mind? Lamentations 3.21 says this, But this I I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He has hope in, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him and him alone. The author is reminding us of lamentations. He's reminding us that the Lord is the same. His steadfast love is always, it's never changing, it's never ceasing, his mercies never come to an end. They are always there, mercy, love, his grace is always there, and so with that we should seek satisfaction and delight in him and him alone. We are inconstant or inconsistent people. We are always changing. We're always changing the way we feel. We're changing idols. We're changing our minds. We're changing the thermostat. We're changing vehicles. We're changing jobs. We're changing churches. We're changing friends. We're, we're always in the case or in the mindset of changing. The one thing that we should be set on or stubborn upon or unmoving is the trust we have in an unchanging God. So the only thing that we should ever not change is our view of the Lord. The people of God turn their backs on him. They turn their backs on God, though he has, he has not changed and will never change. They grew dissatisfied with him. They weren't delighting in him any longer. They weren't getting the things that they thought that they deserved to get. The things that they found delight in, they found satisfaction in. And so they turned and went a different way. Even though God has not changed, the people did. Which unfortunately, in this particular case, verse 7 points out, has been a generational characteristic. So what does it say in verse 7? From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes. So generation after generation after generation, the people of God got in this habit of turning away from the Lord. And so side note today would be this. 
What are you teaching today? Either by your words or by your actions. And what you're teaching today, whatever it is, is being listened to and is being followed. You have more power and more influence than you realize. The issue is, are you using your influence for Christ and his kingdom, proclaiming his name, making his ways and his name famous, or are you making disciples of you? Well, this is the way that my great-granddad did it. And so it must be done this way. Not, this is the way my great-granddad did it, and he followed Christ's example. And so we must do like Christ or imitate Christ, but instead, I want to be just like my great-granddad. Which, by the way, had a phenomenal beard. Just pointing that out. So the people of God were confused. They were confused on what to turn to. They were confused on what was most important. They were confused on where to find delight and satisfaction. They were confused on God's statement here even. What does he say? Verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. So return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? They're asking this question, whatever you do, you mean, God? you're asking us to return to you, so that must mean that you think that we've drifted away from you. So is this God's statement to the people so that they, they might hear and see or feel his gentle nudge back in the right direction? Do they just think that, uh, you know, hey, we've, we've got off track a little ways somewhere down the road, and so we're just needing a nudging back? It doesn't seem that way because it's not a gentle nudge back onto a uh, you've drifted away just slightly. It's a complete turn around. You've robbed God. They're not even aware that they've been doing something wrong. God is having to bring to their attention that they're robbing him. He's having to bring to their attention that, that you just haven't gone drifted off a little bit. You're in need of complete repentance, a complete turnaround, getting on a different track and going in a complete opposite direction. When I was learning to drive as a child, uh, we had a little Jeep on our hunting lease down in South Texas. And, um, I, and this may offend you, I'm sorry. I've already probably have, so I'll just keep going. Uh, but my grandpa, when he's teaching me, he said that my, my task was to keep my butt in the rut. And so that's what I would do. I would keep myself, my seat, in the rut of the, the tracks, the little two-track road on the, on the hunting lease. And if I drifted off a little bit, my papa would either smack me with his nubs or poke me or whatever the case may be and say, get your uh, seat or your bottom or whatever the... Uh, politically correct term is, back in uh, the rut of the road there. This is not the case. Like if this was the case here, God would just say, hey, you've kind of been off. You've kind of drifted away a little bit. And so I'm going to gently nudge you back on track. Instead, this was a stop the vehicle, turn it completely around, and go in a different direction. The people were unaware of this. Can I just ask you this morning, how does that happen? How can you be the people of God under his name, representing him and him alone, and not realize that you're going in the wrong direction? Mostly I feel like it's because we haven't, and it was said Sunday night, Vicky, we're not taking God's word seriously. We're not listening to his commandments and saying, I want to follow him and him alone. We're allowing a, a lot of other things to consume us and to find delight in and satisfaction in and to control all our actions. And in this particular case, when he's pointing out their need to turn around, it has to do with their 
their resources, particularly their money. Where, where are these things going? How are you using these things? Are your possessions possessing you? Do your possessions own you? Or does the Lord, who you've confessed as Lord, does he own you? Verse 8. Will man rob God? That's God's response to their dispute. He says, the people of God say, how shall we return? Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have you robbed you? And he answers with, in your tithes and contributions. So they were unaware that something had gone wrong. They're unaware of a, a need to repent and turn around. They're thinking maybe just a, a gentle nudge back in the right direction, where God's saying, no, a hard stop, a complete turnaround. You've been cursed, and so with that curse, you've been uh, drifting off for years now, generation after generation, and now you need to stop and completely turn around. I wonder if this message might be applicable to today's world, to Christians today, to believers in this room even. Do we need a hard stop and a repentance and a turning around in the right direction? The tithes and the contributions in this particular case, what were they used for? They were used as resources to resource the temple, the temple, all the things that were in the temple, the worship of God, and to care for the poor, to care for those who were destitute, to care for those who were helpless, to care for those who were in need of rescuing. So when they gave money towards the temple or this tithe, these contributions towards God's house, they were saying we're giving towards the worship of God, that he is God and we want to worship him and him alone. And then our contributions, our extra giving is going towards, uh, towards helping those who are poor, those who are lost, those who are destitute, those who are in need of rescuing. The same is true today for us. We are in need of becoming holy and worshiping the Lord, so he sends us Jesus. We are in need of being rescued. We are poor. We are, we are in a, a lowly estate, and so he comes and sees us in that estate, and he sends his son to rescue us from that state, from that condition. So we must be mindful of these things and think and put these things into action. What are we doing with our entire life? All the things that we, that we have. I mean, if the people of God are robbing God, what does that say about God? I mean, think about that for a moment. If the people who God accuses them of robbing him, if these are the people on the earth that are proclaiming his name, that are his representatives, that are his ambassadors, that people know that. I mean, in this particular case, these folks have been ransomed from captivity, brought back to Jerusalem. They have built this phenomenal temple structure that everyone is seeing in the city of Jerusalem. They watch them go into the house belonging to God, the temple of God, and they see the rest of their lives. And they recognize the things that they're living for. And so if the people of God are robbing God, what does that say about God? And the same is true today. If Christians aren't obedient to Christ and his words, what does that say about Jesus? If the church isn't obedient to Christ and his words, what does that say about Christ and his words? If we're not trusting in those things, why should anyone trust in those things? If the people in Malachi's time thought that uh, robbing from God was an okay way to live, then the rest of the world may say, then your God is just some other little g-god, not worthy of being worshipped, not worthy of following, not worthy of giving our whole entire life towards or to. And the same today. We have to apply this to, 
today in our own life. If Christ is Lord, if he is Lord, he must be Lord over all, not just Lord over portions. We cannot, we cannot rob God. We cannot, uh, in this case, the robbing of God does a, a terrible disservice to his name. It's not proclaiming his name. Instead, it's uh, misrepresenting his name. And so we must do well at representing his name well. Being obedient to him and to him alone. Same with the people of God. Verse 8 again. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Or you say, how have he robbed you in your tithes and offerings? I kind of picture this, and this is for, uh, for the junior high folks or for the men in the room who are like myself and still have a junior high mind. I kind of picture this because God is bringing to their attention something that they didn't recognize before. You know how uh, you've had the same flavor deodorant for a long time, and then uh, you accidentally buy a different flavor deodorant, and all of a sudden morning you keep smelling it, like it's, bringing, it's being brought to your attention. This is happening to me right now thankful for deodorant, okay? But I'm just saying, the Lord is bringing to my attention this new flavor. And it smells good, by the way. But in this case, the people were completely unaware of what was happening. They, they smelled one way, in a sense. And they, they thought it was okay. And the Lord's saying, no, listen, smell this. Uh, you need to change. Verse 9 says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is an interesting thing. God's not pointing out one person. He's not saying just one person in your congregation is doing this. Not just one person in the people belonging to God. He's saying the whole corporate body, the whole nation, all the people belonging to God are responsible for this. Someone misled along the way. And it came into the people of God. And they didn't just get off track and start drifting aside. Instead, they're completely, completely off track onto a different track in their need of, their need of repentance. If we think that we own all we have, we tend to be reluctant to give any of it away. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm much different when my parents gave me money and, and friends would say, hey, can you purchase this? Yeah, I got all this free money here. My parents just give it to me and it's awesome. And I just give it away. But when I'm earning it, and I think that it's mine, and I possess it, you ask me for something, and I say, Ah, Brian, are you worthy? Like, I just don't know. I'm going to have to really think and pray over this and decide. And we do the same thing with the Lord. Like, this is mine, and I own this. Belongs to me. Well, that's not the right view of the resources that the Lord has given us. I mean, again, if he is Lord over all of your life, if you confess him as Lord, then surely he can be Lord over your resources and, and money as well. Like surely if he's good enough and powerful enough to rescue you from, the, from death, to rescue you and remove all your sin, surely he can be Lord over your resources as well. We see again that the people of Malachi's day we see the dire results of being possessed by their possessions. We see their, their ownership. These, this thing that I hold in my hand, this money or this time, whatever resource it is that I think belongs to me, begins to consume me and then control me. And so if we can look at the things that have been given to us from the giver, who happens to be the Lord over our life, and we can look at those and say, these things belong to him as well as my life, then we have a much better opportunity to proclaim his name. If we understand that God owns it all, then we are quick to give away on his 
behalf for his name and for his glory. Hey, friend, can you give this away? Yeah, this money belongs to my parents. I'll absolutely give it away. But when we take possession of it and we say, no, this belongs to me, that's when we become stingy. That's when we become petty. That's when we become focused upon fleeting things instead of the eternal king. Verse 9 again, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Out of abundance, give, and then you'll see more abundance. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will no, it will no longer destroy the fruits of your soul. Or sorry, sorry, the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. How will people recognize that the Lord is working in your life? When you recognize that your possessions belong to Him. When those things do not possess you any longer, the rest of the world, all nations, will recognize you do not belong to yourself, nor do you belong to your possessions. Instead, you belong to Jesus, and His name will be exalted in all of this. Now, we have to be real careful here because it sounds as if if I give 10%, if I give a percentage of my giving towards kingdom work, towards the church, or towards some kind of uh, uh, you know Christian charitable organization, uh, then the hope is that if I do that, then, it, then in return, like the 10%, I will, the 10% that I give will then be given back to me in 100% of some sort. Again, we have to check our motives. Who, who are we wanting to get the glory out of this giving? Who are we wanting to receive the honor for this? Whose name, whose possessions, whose things are we wanting to be proclaimed? Again, if the people of God were known for robbing God, and that's representing who God is, we have to think about even what Christ has taught in the Sermon on the Mount, what Christ has taught to the rich young ruler, what Christ taught to Zacchaeus, what Christ taught throughout, uh, what Paul even teaches. We have to think about these things and say, in New Covenant life, in New Covenant life, what is our life supposed to be about? Did Christ make his life on this earth about earthly possessions, about treasuring things upon this earth? Or did he make his life about treasuring the Father, delighting in him, looking towards eternal things? If our motive is to simply give money towards a nonprofit, a charitable organization, the church, or the temple, whatever you want to call it, and say, my hope is that if I give this, then I will be blessed by it, our motives are completely wrong. Our motive should be, just like the people belonging to God were rebuked of or cursed for, our motive should be the Lord. Our motive should be finding delight and satisfaction in Him. Because truthfully, how many of you in this room could say this morning, you've been satisfied by the birthday cake on your birthday? Or you've been satisfied by the Red Rider BB gun you got when you were seven? And you still have it, and you're still finding ultimate satisfaction in that? Or you were, you were so doubly delighted and satisfied in the three Black and Becker drills you got on your wedding day. Because, you know, you just, you just you find those so satisfying. And you're wondering why the battery stopped and it no longer works. I mean, are we really going to find satisfaction in those things of this world? No. The Bible's clear on this. Delight and satisfaction will only be found in Christ and Christ alone. Because he's the only thing that's not changing. He's the same today, tomorrow, and forever. Listen, I want to end with this. If you will, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Because Jesus, uh, Malachi was talking about this, uh, this curse that happened. 
and how the people were cursed. They were cursed because of their disobedience to the, to the Father, cursed because of their heart condition, cursed because of their, uh, the things that they found delight in instead of, instead of the Lord and the Lord alone. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 14. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So it's pretty harsh words here that Peter is writing. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, uh, sorry, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that, verse 18, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. This is where this time, I'm going to stop you for a second, this is where this time of repentance comes in. And Peter is talking about how these people have been led astray generation after generation, trusting in their own passions, uh, listening to their own ignorance, uh, not being obedient to what Christ has done. And so because of that, they're in this curse. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, so listen to this. What does it seem as if, if the blood of Jesus was acceptable to God as a sacrifice, as a payment for your life, do you think that we should be consumed with silver and gold? I mean, if, if God doesn't work, if his bank account isn't about silver and gold, should we be consumed with those things as well? Or should our life be consumed with the blood of Jesus? What he has done, what he's doing, what he's going to do. I mean, if, if payment for your life, purchasing your life, was the blood of Jesus, and that was acceptable, do you think then also we should be about that? We tend to focus in on the 10%. The 10% of the silver and gold that we're going to give to the Father. Thinking that, hey man, I'm deserving of a blessing, Lord. Because look, for decades now, I've been giving 10% of silver and gold. Missing the entire point of what Christ has done. Payment for your soul, payment for your life, for eternity was not purchased with silver and gold. And so we shouldn't be consumed with silver and gold. Instead, as obedient children, we should no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as he who called us is holy, we also, in all our conduct, should be holy as well. The corporate body of Christ can be guilty and has been guilty of being stingy with God's things, with God's resources. We should not be a people known as being possessed by our possessions. Instead, we should be a people known as Christ is Lord of our life and he's Lord over all of our life. We see the effects today. We see the effects of 
these this idol worship or uh, being stingy or petty with things. We see the effects of this, and so we must change that. We must understand, again, that God owns it all, that all these resources are His, and then we, with that being known, and in our hearts and controlling us, Christ's love compelling us, we say to Him, be all glory. His name be the one receiving all the glory. His kingdom be the one that we're living for. Him we're finding delight in, and Him alone. Galatians 3, 13-14 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now listen to this. When, when Malachi preaches this to the people of God and saying, you're cursed because of your heart condition. You're cursed because of the things that you're living for. You're cursed because of that. We can rejoice in saying, Christ has become the curse for us. He has taken our place. I mean, in Malachi's time, the people of God, this giving of 10% was a temporary task. It's a temporary, it's temporary instruction, really. It's not instruction for eternity. It's temporary. Like you, you've been doing these things in hopes that you're going to live a holy life. But can I just remind you that I'm going to send the Messiah who will take the curse upon himself so that you can be redeemed and ransomed from the curse so you can be purchased by his, by his blood and then live eternally for him, for his name, for his glory. And yet so many of us, including myself, every day want to run back to the cursed life. Want to run back and be obedient to possessions. Be obedient to things of the world. We want to worship the gift instead of the giver. We want to be consumed and controlled by the things that we think we'll find satisfaction and delight in. I just simply wrote this because I'm a simple-minded guy. Jesus becomes the curse for us. Woohoo. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what we should celebrate. That in this case, when the people of God drifted away or completely got off track, and the commandment or the obedience was to quit robbing from God, you're a cursed generation, so quit robbing from God and give the whole, the whole tithe to the house. We get to celebrate in this new covenant that every bit of it has been purchased. And so with that, in freedom and grace and in new mercy every day, I say, Christ, you became the curse for me. You redeemed my soul from the depths of death. You become the giver of life. And in that, I want to find satisfaction in you and you alone. So Lord, convict me. Convict me where I find satisfaction and delight in things of this world. God, change my heart so that my delight is in you and you alone. God, send me wherever it may be so that I can, so that I can proclaim your name to the nations. God, all my time, all my resources, every bit of my life, if my confession of Christ is that you are Lord of my life, Christ be Lord over all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Daily I'm convicted because I look at resources of this world and think, when, when can I have more? When can I get what I want? God, aren't I deserving? 
And then you know, because you know all things, I just become petty and stingy. So continue to break me, transform me into your likeness, continue to discipline me, God, so that your name is proclaimed. God, in this morning for others in this room who are living for things of this world, God, change us, convict us. God, let us see Christ, what he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do, as much as our minds can, can, can contain it. God, so that we find delight and satisfaction in you and you alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.